0: Well, church, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, will be our text. And while you're finding your way uh, to 2 Thessalonians, I do uh, want to encourage you to continue to pray for our dear sister Esther, uh, who uh, saw her her husband of 65 years, Doug, uh, go uh, into the arms of Jesus. I believe it was on... Uh, this week, I forget what day it was, just a couple days ago, and, and so it, it's going to be strange uh, being in a church without Doug. Um, he has, of course, been a great blessing to so many of us, and so we ask that you continue to pray for the Stratton family. We're going to have services uh, for Doug. His memorial service is going to be this Saturday at 11 a.m., and we're going to do that outside, and I know it will be a great blessing uh, to our church family and to Esther in particular Uh, If you were able to gather with us at Saturday at 11 a.m. as we honor um, our brother Doug and his faith in the Lord Jesus. And so 2 Thessalonians is our text this morning as we continue our study. This is, uh, God willing, we'll we'll preach uh, this this passage and then next week will be our last uh, Sunday in this wonderful little book. And I hope that God has blessed you through it as he has me. But here we find ourselves in chapter 3 once again and we'll begin uh, this morning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and you will do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning, and we come, uh, come to it humbly with eager hearts asking for you to speak to us, that you would even speak through me this morning according to your spirit and by your great pleasure, that you would open up these truths for us, that we might consider them and we might know you better and your will for our lives better and apply them to us, and that we might be more conformed to Christ, more willing to Uh, be on the mission he calls us, to establish his kingdom here on earth. And so we're thankful, and we come with eager hearts and hungry souls to your scripture now, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was on Monday, following Easter Sunday in 1952, when the, the evangelist Duncan Campbell was preaching at a missions conference in Northern Ireland. He had just finished his sermon and he sat down on the platform uh, next to the chairman of the conference. And out of nowhere, a word came to his mind. It's the word burnaray. Burnaray. Burnaray happens to be a small Scottish island. Well, Campbell thought that was unusual. He began to pray. And as he was praying there on the platform with his head bound, this word came back to his mind burnaray. He continued to pray. And for a third time, he, he was burdened with this word, Bernera. And so he turned to to the uh, chairman of the conference and whispered to him, while someone else was speaking, "Brother, you'll have to excuse me. I need to go to Bernera." Well, the chairman objected. He said, "No, you're our you're our keynote speaker for the rest of the conference." But Campbell wouldn't be dissuaded. He went to the hotel, packed up his two suitcases, went to the airport, and that said, I need a flight to Berneray. He said, the island's too small, with no planes fly to Berneray. He says, well, you fly me to the closest island to Berneray. So he got on a flight to the closest island to Berneray, got out of the airport, walked down to the coast, found a fisherman who would be willing to put him in his boat and and sail over uh, to, to this little island. And so he did, and Campbell in his suit with his two suitcases on this little fishing boat, and the fisherman took him to this abandoned coast and Duncan Campbell got out of the boat, walked onto the beach with his two suitcases, and he would later say of this event that I had never been to Bernaray, had known no one from Berneray, and had never received a letter from anyone living on Bernaray. But nevertheless, he climbed over the bluff, found a field, and there uh, was a farmer working the field. He said to the farmer, go tell your nearest elder that Duncan Campbell has arrived. The farmer thought the man was out of, his, out of his mind, just walking into his field, carrying his suitcases. But off he went. And Duncan Campbell just set up a suitcase there in the middle of the field, sat down upon it, waiting for the uh, return answer. And about a half an hour later, uh, the farmer came back to him and said, quote, the elder was expecting you. He said to tell you the meeting will be at nine o'clock. He has already sent out the invitations and he has your room ready. You see, while... Campbell was at this conference three days earlier this elder spent his day praying in his barn for God to send revival to the island his wife would overhear him praying Lord I don't know where he is but you know and with with you all things are possible will you please send him to this island the elder was so confident that God would answer that prayer that he made arrangements for a week-long revival uh, series announcing that Duncan Campbell would be the guest speaker and had sent out invitations and made arrangements for the services. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? What God can do through prayer. How God can work through our petitions. It seems Paul knew this, which is why when he's coming to the conclusion of this letter, he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Will you pray for us? And of course, we considered that passage at length last time, if you were here. The content of Paul's prayer. We're not going to consider the content of the prayer this morning, but I just want to think with you about the role which God has given to prayer for the advancement of his church, for the, the, for the growth of his kingdom. You can really take these five verses and divide them in half, if you will. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2, are the people praying for their pastor, Pastor Paul. In the le- verses three through five, you see really the pastor praying for their people. And it seems, once again, we find that Paul has an extremely high value of prayer. It seems to me that we don't today. That prayer is undervalued in our culture, in our society. We used to say, we, even in my lifetime, you, you've heard this saying, we had a saying in our society, uh, when, when something bad would happen, we would, we would say to them, you're in my prayers, you're in my prayers. I'm praying for you. In other words, somewhere along the line we added a thoughts to that statement, right? And that, then we begin to say, "Well, you're in my thoughts and prayers," and it seems today we've just dropped prayers altogether now, and now we now we seek to comfort people by saying, "You're in my thoughts." Like I, in other words, I'm thinking things about you. You're up here in my brain. I don't know what that's gonna do for anybody. I don't know how that's gonna encourage, but hey, I'm thinking about you. That's what we say because we forgot the value of prayer. We don't value it like we used to. And I wonder if we as Christians, we as Hamilton Baptist Church are any better. Of course, we often say, do we not? I'm praying for you. It's easy to say, isn't it? But do we actually do it? We actually seek the Father in prayer, I hope that we would. I trust that we do. And my, my, my prayer is that this passage, my prayer even as I thought about this passage, it will work in us a greater desire to prayer to pray private prayers and prayers in our community groups and prayers from the pulpit and prayers in our elders' meetings and and prayers over the phone and and prayers in our community. Even a couple times this this summer, Cody and I have gone up to Lovettsville. We just walked through the neighborhoods up in Lovettsville praying for the families in these homes that God's word would speed ahead in their life and triumph. Listen, church, we need to pray. We need to pray for each other. You need to pray For your pastors, for your elders, your pastors and elders need to pray for you. Of course, Paul has been saying this over and over again in this letter. If you've been following along, remember in chapter one and verse three, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right says, I'm praying for you. And then in chapter one, verse 11, he says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his, of his calling. And then, and then we find again in, in chapter two and verse 13, he says, we ought always to pray, uh, give thanks for you. And then we find in chapter two and verse 16, that great benediction. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father who loved you and gave you eternal comfort and good hope through grace, establish your hearts in every good work and word. You see, Paul continues, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. And we come then to chapter three and verse one, and he says, finally, brothers, pray for me. Pray for us. He's writing, uh, you might remember, from Corinth. And things aren't going so well for Paul at this point. You know, remember Paul on this second missionary journey was headed elsewhere, And just like Duncan Campbell, some 2,000 years later, God said, no, I want you to come to a place you did not expect. And over to Europe, Paul went, walked in a town called Philippi. And God blessed that ministry. Church was started there. And yet Paul and Silas were beaten and humiliated and thrown in prison. He limped into then Thessalonica, the very town in which he's writing this letter. He wasn't there for but just a month or so before a mob rose up and he had to tiptoe out of town in the middle of the night, off to Berea. And then in Berea, the, 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 his opponents from Thessalonica, Thessalonica followed him there, they got another mob worked up, and Paul had to run for himself. Then on into Athens, and the people in Athens were so full of themselves, they mocked and rejected and, and ridiculed Paul for believing in the resurrection. And finally, he makes him sw- his way into the vast city of Corinth. He's bruised and beaten and harassed. He's alone and full of discouragement. Later, he would, he would ride at the time he came to Corinth in weakness and fear and with much trembling. That's how I came here. And so now he says, will you please, from Corinth, please pray for me. Brothers and sisters, will you pray for me? This is a pastor asking for prayer. Even as, as I echo that request today, as your pastor, I ask for your prayers. And I'm so thankful that so many of you do pray for me. And you tell me over and over again, you say, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Some of you pray for me every day. Some of you pray for my family. I mean, you even know my children's names. I mean, you'll come up to me and say, listen, I was praying for Gideon the other day, and I'm thinking, oh, that's his name, thank you. I see, you like, right? right you send them birthday cards and anniversary cards because you're praying for us, and we're in our mind. And by the way, it'd be very helpful if you could send those anniversary cards a couple days early, okay? You're praying for me, and I praise God for that, right? We need to be praying for one another. What should we pray? Well, three things. Pray, first of all, even as we saw last week, for the word's triumph. The words triumph. Paul says in verse one, finally brothers pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. In other words, he says, I want the word to triumph through my ministry just like it happened in you. Please pray that this would happen. Now I find this extraordinary because remember who it is is writing this. This is Paul. Paul is a brilliant preacher. Perhaps the greatest mind of his generation. And beyond that, Paul actually spoke with the resurrected Christ. Paul is writing the Bible. Paul performs miracles to validate his message. He sees visions. He casts out demons. He even raises the dead. And this man writes to this little church filled with Christians who are maybe one year old in their faith. And he says to them, oh please Thessalonians, I, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, need your prayers. I need you to pray for me. I find that utterly astonishing in light of who Paul is. He knows how to preach. He knows how to evangelize. He knows how to plant churches. And yet he says, please pray for me. And he does so again and again and again. For instance, in Romans 15 and verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Paul says, I need your prayers. I I need God's people praying for me. This is what all of God's people have thought. The people that God would use mightily. Perhaps you know of the spies sent by the Roman Catholic Church to find out Martin Luther's weakness. Some 500 years ago, he returned to Rome saying, who can overcome a man who prays like this? John Calvin would rise every morning at 4 a.m. and pray. John Edwards would pray all day before he would preach a sermon. Perhaps my favorite story of prayer used amongst God's people was told by five ministerial students who were studying for the pastorate. They were visiting London and thought they might uh, hear the great Charles Spurgeon preach there in London on a hot Sunday in July. And while they were waiting for the church to open, a man approached them and he said to these five ministerial students, he said, gentlemen, would you like to see the heating plant of the church? And these five thought that was a very unusual request in light of the fact that this is a blazing hot Sunday. And yet, not to be impolite, they said, sure. And so the man took them down into the basement of this church. And we, uh, the biographer reads uh, that he opened the door and he whispered to these Five students, there, sirs, is our heating plant. Surprised, the students saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. Slowly closing the door, the gentleman introduced himself as Charles Spurgeon. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon what was the secret to his success of his ministry. He said simply, my people pray for me. Paul understands this. Paul knows that the success of the word will depend not simply on his preaching but upon the prayers of God's people. Right? When we preach, when we teach, when we share God's word, we want dead people to come alive. Who can do that but God alone? And so we must ask him. Ask him that the word of the Lord would triumph, that the word of the Lord would win. Which is also an extraordinary idea because is there any danger that God's word's going to lose? Do you have any doubts whether God's word will win? The word of God created the world. God spoke, and the world left into existence. Who's going to compete with that? Hollywood, Darwin, Fifth Avenue. Who will compete with the word of God? Of course, it's going to win. The Bible prophesies in Isaiah 11, verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's word, I tell you, will win. It will be recognized as superior to all other words. It will one day be honored by all. when we pray. The word of the Lord will have victory, it will be glorified, it will be honored, it will triumph when we pray. That, I mean, he says, why, why else would he be asking for this? It will be, listen, the logic is not, the word of the Lord will be victorious, therefore do nothing. It is the word of the Lord will have victory, but it will only have victory when we join God in that work and pray for that victory. The word of the Lord, listen, according to scripture, is dependent not only on it's being proclaimed, but upon the prayers of God's people. And so we if you were to go to God and ask God, listen, are, are you going to make the victory of your word dependent upon our prayers? God emphatically, I believe, according to scripture, would say, absolutely I am. yes. My, my plan, the plan of redemption, the advancement of the kingdom, the redemption of, of people from all trunks and tribes and nations is dependent upon the faithful proclamation of my word and the faithful prayer that that proclamation would be enabled. God intends to expand the kingdom of God, but does not intend to do it without our prayers. In other words, he intends to win, but not without giving you a part of the victory, the very victory of God's kingdom. The goal of all redemption. God's plan for redemption is dependent upon our prayers. I find that extraordinary, that God would give us a part to play like that. I what an inducement to pray. We were working in my own heart. I wrote this sermon about a month ago, and God working in my heart, this great honor that He has given us to pray. We think about all the things that we give ourselves to and you think about all the great people in our world and the people that, the, that we put on the platforms and that, that we all applaud and, we, and all the celebrities and all the rest, all the people that have accomplished great things. And we look around and we think about you know Elon Musk or Steve Jobs and these incredible businessmen and entrepreneurs. You think about the great novelists. You think about uh, uh, you know, the, those who win the awards and those who have the titles and, and all the rest and all the people that we think, oh, this person's great, he could throw a ball and this person's great he can write a book and this person's great he's to develop this this company but when you stand before God listen we're all going to stand before God in like a day or so don't you realize that it's going to be here before we know it the Bible says our our life is like a winter's breath it's here now it's gone gone tomorrow gone in a moment gone in a second and one day we're going to stand before God forever and who will be great on that day who are we going to applaud on that day I like how John Piper imagines it when he says, on that day, the novel is gone, IBM is gone, the Super Bowl is gone, the battalion is gone, the presidency is gone, the titles are gone, the awards are gone. And off to the side of this group of erstwhile greats is John Doe Christian, who in his life had spent 30 minutes a day on his knees praying that the word of the Lord would run ahead of me glorifying. And behind him, Stretching as far as the eye can see are people from every tribe and tongue and nation praising God and shouting, Worthy are you, Lord God Almighty, for you have put it in the heart of John Doe Christian to pray. And by his prayers, you have caused the word to run and be glorified in our faith. Long live the King. Long live John Doe Christian! God has made, my brothers and sisters, I tell you based upon the authority of the word of God, God has made prayer as a tool for participating in his work of redemption, which is greater than all the greatnesses in this world. It's a truth that a man named Art Wines discovered, just a John Doe Christian, someone you never heard of. He was a classmate of someone you have heard of, Jim Elliott, the great missionary martyr in Ecuador. They went to school together. And when Jim Elliott was a, a college student, he organized a week long, around the clock prayer vigil for missions. And so he organized in 15 minute slots, there would be a student praying for every minute of every day for those seven days for missions. One of those students that pray, was a part of that prayer was a man named Art Wines. But Art didn't stop praying after the week was over. He was so moved by that week of prayer that he continued to pray throughout his college years and then after his college years. And he would continue to pray through that college directory for 25 years, 10 students every day by name. 25 years later, Art Wines uh, bumped into a friend from college and he asked him if he remembered that prayer week. His friend says, yeah, I remember that prayer week. Art said, you know, I haven't stopped praying. And he actually took out a 25-year-old booklet and he said, you know, I'm still praying for 500 of our college classmates who are now on the mission field. It's not not extraordinary. 500 students from one college class followed God into the foreign lands in order to, to proclaim the gospel of God. And he had this old notebook and he had written down by each people's names, the notes and where they were and how he's praying for them. 500 people went to the mission field to spread the kingdom of God and only heaven knows how many did so because a man named Art Wines prayed. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, Let us renew our commitment to this cause and pray. Let us pray that the word of God would speed ahead in our neighbor's lives and triumph. Let's pray that the word of God would make it it up to Lovettsville as we plant Lovettsville Baptist Church in September of next year and that the word of God would advance in that city. Let's pray that God would send out missionaries from Hamilton Baptist Church so that the word of of the Lord would advance. Let's pray for our pastors and our elders and our Sunday school teachers and, and our youth workers and our children's workers that they would hold to the truth and be filled with the spirit and proclaim the word of the lord let's pray for parents and grandparents and 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 aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters that the word of the lord might run from their mouths and triumph in the lives of their children and their grandchildren let's pray that the word would have its victory in our lives that we might obey it that we might conquer our sinful habits and grow in christ's likeness for paul secondly teaches us that we need to pray for our church's devotion our church's devotion Notice what he says there in verse 3. He says, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. It's an interesting verse, isn't it, in light of what we've been studying here. But the Lord is faithful. Why does he begin verse 3 with the word but? Well, look, look back up in verse 2. That was Paul's prayer request. We considered that last week. He says, that, pray that we will be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. In other words, there is opposition to the word. There there are opponents. But what? God is faithful. He, He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. In other words, I think what Paul is teaching us is that behind the opposition to the word stands one even greater, stands the evil one, stands what whom the Bible calls Satan or Lucifer, an unseen force of evil working against God and his kingdom. And so what do we do in face of this opposition? What do we do in face of those who stand and oppose to us? What do we do in face of the evil one? Well, we, we pray. We pray. What do we pray? We pray that God would establish us to continue in the faith, that he would guard us from temptation and error, that we would withstand the suffering and the mocking and the rejection, and that we would do so because God is faithful to protect us. I think this is, verse 3, is a great encouragement for us, that, that God would not only use us, We'll use our prayers, but he's going to keep us. He's going to guard us. He's going to cause his word to go forth because we ask him through prayer, and he will faithfully, secondly, stand by his people and never forsake them in this battle. Why? Because the Lord is faithful. He's faithful. You know, an interesting study for you this week is to look up the faithfulness whenever the New Testament mentions that God is faithful. God is faithful. I did so and found five different areas that talks about the faithfulness of God in the New Testament. How is it that God is faithful? Well, we've, we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter one and verse nine that he's faithful to complete our salvation. We see secondly that he's faithful to empower us to resist temptation, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Thirdly, we find that God is faithful to fulfill all his promises. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verse 18, Hebrews 10, verse 28. Fourthly, he's faithful to vindicate suffering Christians, 1 Peter 4 and verse 19. Lastly, you probably even have this memorized. In fact, let me, we, we read in Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is, do you know it? Faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. God's faithfulness is attached to forgiveness, fifthly. So great is God's faithfulness that Jeremiah, the great prophet, standing amidst the ruins of Jerusalem, just sacked by an invading army, declares the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so my brothers and sisters, let the faithfulness of God be a great inducement and encouragement for us to pray and to persevere, to stand fast against all those who would oppose us in this great gospel work. I love the story of a mother named Monica who prayed desperately for her son named Augustine. She in particular prayed not only for Augustine's salvation, but she prayed very specifically that Augustine, her son, would not allow to go to Rome for she was sure that once he's in that that great city of Rome, he would give himself to all the temptations that that city um, brought about. She was incredibly distraught and discouraged when on a particular night after earnest supplication, praying all night that God would save her son and keep him from Rome, she learned that very night that Augustine boarded a ship for that same city. And he would make it to Rome. But unknown to Monica, his mother, It is in Rome that he would not simply fall in temptation, but he would uh, meet a man named Ambrose, a great preacher of his day, and soon Augustine would be converted to Christ and become perhaps the church's greatest theologian ever. Augustine would later write a letter to God saying, in your deep counsel, you heard my mother's central point of her longing, though you did not grant her what she asked for, but you did make me what she continually prayed for. God is faithful, and he hears our prayers, and he answers them according to his wisdom. He knows what's best for us, and so let us find our confidence in him. Certainly Paul does, for he says there in verse 4, does he not? And we are confident in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul's not shy to give them commands, and we'll see that very clearly even in next week's sermon. Paul will continually command, seek uh, Christians to obey. We're saved by faith most definitely, but that faith leads to obedience. But Paul is not uncertain that they will obey. He says, I'm confident in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things I command. Notice his confidence is not in their moral excellency. His confidence is in the Lord. I, it's not I'm confident that you are all are great people and actually do what I tell you. I'm confident that God will lead you into obeying what, I, what I've asked you to do. And so once again, we see that confidence in God's work doesn't eliminate our need for prayer. It strengthens it and encourages it. For we find Paul's commands in verse four, but now you see in verse five, he explicitly turns to to prayer as he prays that God would enable the obedience that he's confident they'll do. As we see lastly this morning, we should pray for our godly desires. Godly desires. I think verse five is worthy of your memorization, a beautiful prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It's a prayer I've been praying for many of you by name for the past month. May the Lord direct our hearts to the, steadfa- to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That's interesting to me, isn't it? Perhaps it is to you, that God would direct our hearts, that God would point our hearts in a certain direction. Our hearts are directional. Our hearts lead us places. Our hearts are never parked. They're never in neutral. Our hearts are always pursuing something. They're always chasing something. And, and wherever our hearts want to go, that's where we are, are, are going to go. Our hearts are going to lead us. Of course, it's very easy, therefore, to get off course. But if your hearts are off by a couple degrees, you keep following that direction. You'll find yourself far, far away from where you thought you'd be. It was in 2006 I was snowshoeing in early April, late March and early April in the, uh, up near the Continental Divide in Colorado Rockies. Um, the snow was 12 to 20 feet high. Uh, there were no trails visible. We, my dad and I were out for five days, uh, maybe saw one person in those five days, and we were doing our best to navigate about a 40-mile circuit over those five days through the, through the Rockies, and, and this is back before the days of GPS. You know, you have the handheld GPS device or smartphones. We had this really cool technology in 2006. It was called a map. I don't know if you're aware of these things, a paper, fold it up. And then you have another piece of technology which is equally wonderful. It's called a compass. And uh, so you got a map and a compass. And, and you could do wonderful things if you know how to use these two pieces of Technology. You could actually, if you're high enough, you've, which we were, we were about 12,000 feet, so a couple thousand feet above the timber lines to the altitudes high for trees to grow up there. And you could, you could look around and, and find landmarks uh, on the horizon and then identify those same landmarks on your map and then triangulate your position using your compass and are able to find exactly where you are on that map, which is, of course, how we had to navigate because there were no trails. It was all cross-country. And I, I remember a sing- uh, uh, at one point, probably on our third day there, um, we, were, we had become misplaced. Okay? Now, I, I, knew, I knew we were in Colorado. Um, that was clear, but I wasn't quite exactly sure where we were. And I, uh, we, were, we were doing our best to orient ourselves and try to go in the direction that we thought we wanted to go. And I had uh, concluded that, that we were to go uh, this direction And my dad, uh, thankfully, uh, was a much wiser man than I am. He wasn't quite sure that that was the direction. Yes, dad, this is it. Showed him how I triangulated us. This is where we are. This is where we need to go. And he said, well, let's just rethink this. And we rethought it and realized I was only about 80 degrees off in my uh, direction, uh, actually taking us up over the continental divide in the middle of avalanche season. Um, And so uh, we praise God that uh, my father won the argument. But you see, we, we get off in a certain direction and we end up in a place that we don't want to go. Right? Your hearts are going to take you someplace. I mean, how many people do you know who, who have walked away from Jesus? I guarantee almost none of them woke up one morning and said, you know what I think I'll do today? I think I'll reject Christ. Right? You know people have walked away from their, their wives, their husbands, I can almost guarantee, you you know what they did not do? They woke up one morning and you think, you know what I'll do? I think I'll abandon my spouse. Well, how do they get to those places then? Well, it's just one step at a time. Just a couple degrees off. It's just developing a friendship. She's just a friend. That friendship becomes personal and then intimate. And then there's an affair and then a divorce. One step at a time and all your dreams and all your hopes, all your plans when you're a young person are all gone because you were just off by a couple degrees. And so Paul says, "See, praise prays for the Thessalonians, God, will you direct their hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? That to me is extraordinary because sometimes people will say, well, God's not allowed to work in our hearts. Right? I thought, don't we have free will. Right, God, that, 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 That's off limits to God. God can't get in here and change what I want, can he? God can't get in here and change what I desire, can he? Well, yes, he can. And we ought to pray that he does. Because our hearts will take us to the flesh. Our hearts will take us from God. And so Paul is praying for the Thessalonians. Oh, dear God, Will you direct them? Will you guide them? Will you work within them that they might cherish your love and be in awe of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is how we should pray for non-believers. God, will you direct their hearts? Will you take out their self-love? Will you take out their confusion and give them a love for you and a love for your word? And specifically, he says, direct them to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Think about that verse once again, verse five. I want you to get this in your mind. Now may the Lord direct our, direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Now may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. What he's praying is that we, we would see and experience the love of God in such a way that it is powerful and compelling and winsome and life-changing. I think so many people, maybe you even here, just exhausted in their Christianity. There's like It's a little candle about to be snuffed out. You've lost the zeal. You've lost the fire. You've lost the joy in your faith. You find yourself lukewarm, perhaps even today. Paul is saying, God, will you not let them understand and grow in appreciation and delight in how much you love them? Will you let that be, be the all-consuming reality in their life, that they are loved by God himself? In fact, you love them so much that you sent Christ into this world to so direct their hearts to the steadfastness of Christ. I ask you, where was Christ steadfast? Was it not on the cross of Calvary? We continued to walk the path the Father had laid out for him where he bore our sins. He took them upon us, upon him. He died as a substitutionary punishment for us in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead and Christ was steadfast in doing the work to save you. And now he declares according to his scripture that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Of course, you know that to be the gospel, Christian. You hear that every week here. Over and over, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And sometimes I think we get to the point in our Christian life where the Gospels is kind of like a carrot. You know, I, I, I know I should eat it. It's good for me. But I don't really want to. It loses its joy. It loses its value. You know, the Bible speaks of of the gospel as a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field and he goes, he, he buries that treasure again and he goes in his great joy, sells everything he has. He sells his home and his cars and his clothes and he cashes in his retirement and all his savings. Why? So he can buy the field that contains the treasure so that he can have the gospel. That's how the scripture presents the gospel to us, the steadfastness of Christ to us. And Paul's saying, would God, would you not awaken their hearts to the glory and the, the, the majesty of the work of Jesus. I pray that for you. I've been praying that, for, as I mentioned, for a month since I wrote this sermon, praying for my own heart. I pray for you who today who gather here or maybe on our live stream and you don't know Christ. Christ has no value to you. There's no joy in Jesus, that God would direct your hearts to him, that you would long to know the forgiveness that he offers you so freely if you would place your faith in him even now that you would discover in the suffering of Christ just this massive tidal wave of the love of God for you and that you would receive it. And even as we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment, that we would think that God would even direct our hearts then to the love of God in the broken body of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And that we would direct our heart to the endurance and the steadfastness of Christ in his shed blood, that he would awaken in our souls and our life the supreme worth of our God and his gospel. Well, I mentioned Duncan Campbell made it to, those, to that meeting uh, there on, on Burner Ray. He preached that first sermon that night and he would write about it. It was rather ordinary day. He was kind of expecting something bigger in light of how he got there. Came back the next night, preached his sermon, not much happened. He was closing up the church, turning off the lights. When he walked out the front door, he, w- was, he found the entire congregation had gathered outside the building. He would, he would write, so gripped by the power of God that they were unable to leave. He would shout, everybody back in. And they all came back into the church And with minutes, many sin-burdened souls began to call upon God for salvation as he directed their hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Hundreds were saved, transformed that night, and in the following days, the entire island of Bernouin will be transformed in the 1950s by what is known to us now in church history as the Lewis Revivals or the Lewis Awakening, all because of why? Because of prayer. One man in a barn asking God that his word would speed ahead in triumph. Christians, we have the word. You love the word. We have it. We wield it by prayer. The effectiveness of God's word in our church is going to depend upon the degree in which it is, one, proclaimed, and two, that we pray for its victory. And so would you commit yourself? Maybe even, listen, I, I counted up the days we have left in this, this wonderful year of 2020. we got 88 days left. 2020 will be over if God doesn't send Christ in 88 days. I wonder what would happen if every single member of this church, every day for the next 88 days, simply prayed, our Lord, would you cause... Your word to speed ahead and be honored through the ministry and the members of Hamilton Baptist Church. How long did that take? 15 seconds? Can you do that for the next 88 days? We'll just see what happens. God, would you cause your word of the Lord to speed ahead and triumph through the ministry and members of Hamilton Baptist Church. Our Father, we're so thankful for your scripture and we are in awe of the great and amazing privilege that you give to us through prayer. I, I believe, even as I've already shared this morning, that you have, you have linked the success of your purpose of redemption to your people both proclaiming your word and praying for its advance. And so we ask even now that you would make Hamilton Baptist Church a people of prayer. And that we wouldn't simply pray for the needs, pressing needs in front of us, but we would pray for your kingdom and for your gospel to go forth. And we even pray that now for those who are here today and are in desperate need of you to work in their lives. Maybe their marriages are rocky. Maybe they're Entrapped in hidden sin. And Father, will you not even now direct their hearts to your love? May, may your love be so powerful in their life that they would find freedom in it and victory over the things that temptation tempt them. And that the steadfastness of Christ would be so amazing and so glorious that they would want to lay down everything for Him. And of course, we pray for those who don't know Jesus and ask, Father, that you would work in their lives that they too might know the love of the one true God and the work of his son on their behalf. It's that work that we want to celebrate now as we come to the Lord's Supper. And so even as we pray silently, individually just for a moment to prepare our own hearts for the supper meal, we ask you as the psalmist prayed long ago that you would reveal any sin in our hearts that we might turn and repent even now and come to the Lord's table with a clean conscience, rejoicing in your grace. We thank you for this meal in which we are about to partake and the work of Christ that it reminds us of. We confess once again that we are sinners who have received your great grace through the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus. It's this we celebrate, it's this we remember. This we proclaim, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen.